Welcome to Silicon Valley Momentum, where advisor and author Roland Siebeling talks all things tech startups and brings you interviews with founders across the world. Now, here's your host. Hello and welcome to the Silicon Valley Momentum podcast. I'm so excited today because joining us from, I believe, Malta are Brian Medell, CEO, and Chris Benjaminson, the founder of Forever. Is that pronounced as forever, guys? It is FRVR. FRVR. Okay, it, excellent. It, if you absolutely want to pronounce it, you would probably say forever. I uh, I don't know if this is uh, is useful, but we are in fact joining from Lisbon and London. <laughs> <laughs> See, I got it wrong but, uh, already. This world, no, we have no idea anymore where people are, right? So we we are a very multinational bunch, so that's uh, perfectly understandable. FRVR. What does the company do? What difference does it make in the world? FRVR makes games and brings the right games to the right user wherever they are, and that sounds very simple, but mm-hmm. it's not. It's not currently what's happening in the world. Okay. So what's the difference uh, from other companies that make games? Because there are quite a few out there, right? There's quite a few. We are mostly focused on the world beyond the app stores. Mm -hmm. Most of the game industry currently would be on on mobile app stores, I think. Mm -hmm. And today, people on mobile devices is basically most of what we consider computer users and, and gamers. Mm-hmm. But on mobile, the distribution model is just fundamentally broken. So generally, people end up playing the game that was advertised the heaviest to them. Right. That makes it so that the people who make games generally have a real hard time reaching their audience if they can't compete with $100 million in marketing budgets. And the people who play games generally get to play the games that monetize them the most aggressively. And we don't feel like that's an ideal situation for the players or the developers. So we are currently trying to solve that. So does that mean, Chris, that in a way the game companies become more marketing machines than actually good game developers that you don't really compete or that companies typically don't really compete on the quality of the game anymore? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, like making a good game today is probably less than 10% of actually being a successful game developer, mm-hmm. right? Of course, you have people who are sort of lucky, who stand out, like the, the people you hear about where it's like a single developer who just happened to make that game that was good enough by mm. a big YouTuber picking it up, right? But that, mm-hmm. is, that is an unnatural state of affair. That is not the story of the average developer. Mm-hmm. So, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the games in the hand of the users without yeah. them necessarily having to go through this inherently abusive process of, of user acquisition. And what we found by doing so is that the, the consumer don't, inherently have a preference for technology. Mm-hmm. As long as they get a good game that they can enjoy, they don't particularly, typically even know or care about how they got that good game, right? And that, that mm-hmm. has opened up an opportunity for, for distributing games in, in different ways. When okay. FRBR mm-hmm. was, was really young, right? Uh, the way we would do it is we would sort of find a, a user on the internet mm-hmm. uh, through a browser, a sort of a bad version of the game. And then we would upsell them to playing their mobile app version, right? Mm -hmm. But as the the sort of market has matured and as mobile phone has become sort of more powerful, that need to move people into a mobile app has gone away because Mm -hmm. now we can can provide sometimes even a better experience outside of the app store than inside the app store. Mm. Uh, That might sound counterproductive, right? But if you look at the average consumer today, they have like much more than 100% of their time taken up by entertainment. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people are playing games while watching shows or whatever. Right. So so people already have something to do. 
there's no minute in the day where a consumer is not entertained, right? Right, the end of boredom in a sense, right? Yeah, 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 there's no boredom, right? Like we're all fighting for the same eyeball minutes now. Uh-huh. And that means for you to provide a product that a user wants to engage with or is likely to engage with, you're much better off trying to address the user where they've already decided they want to be. Mm-hmm. If a user really likes TikTok, allow them to play your game on TikTok, right? Rather than necessarily trying to do the thing which happens now, which is drag the user away from TikTok through the app store to play your game on the mobile app, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and, so, yeah. so Brian, is that, does that mean that really part of the strategy is to be embedded in several platforms to, as Chris is saying, really be where the user already is and not force them into a friction process of having to sign up, move into an app store, things like that? Yep. You, uh, you totally got it. We, we let the user decide. And I think today users don't generally, you know, they don't go to the, to the, uh, the specific place to consume the specific content anymore. They're used to, to these rivers of transient content flowing past them and news feeds and messengers. And basically um, they, they can decide to, to engage with not, not just you know, games, but also music and movies pretty much anywhere they are. Mm-hmm. And, and we just feel like this is the latest media format to, to, to follow that pattern. So how many games do you have right now and how is it looking in terms of the distribution of users? Is there like one game really having the bulk of all your traffic or is it a bit more of a, uh, a distribution that you also maybe see shifting over time? It actually, it actually shifts over time. But in general, I think all uh, game portfolios will always have some sort of power law distribution. There will always mm-hmm. be a few number of titles that has a relatively high percentage of the, um, of the traffic. But We've seen over time that we've gotten better and better at compressing that field. So it's a little bit special for us because we don't just operate in a single market. We operate in many, many markets on top of mm-hmm. each other. So we tend to have these wild growth spikes in one market or another market, okay. which will make whatever I say now true by the uh, right now, but probably mm-hmm. untrue by the end of the conversation. But it, it certainly is getting better and better over time to the point where uh, quite a few titles are, are seeing some really significant traffic. Okay, so uh, what I think a lot of other founders could could possibly learn from here is how do you manage so much complexity? You know, many other startups I talk to, scale-ups even are managing one product in maybe one geography and thinking about more geographies. How have you guys been able to manage that complexity with multiple products in your portfolio and then also in multiple markets? What does that mean for how you set up your company? Basically, FRVR was built exactly for this use case from day one. Mm-hmm. So it was always a case that we wanted a, a, a build once and, and, and distribute everywhere model. Mm-hmm. And one thing we, for instance, do with every single developer we work with, they all work in the same technical framework. Mm-hmm. So there's no exceptions to that. There's only right. one way to build a game that we can publish. Mm-hmm. And that's through our game engine and through, through our infrastructure. And we also like, generally only have one deal for developers. Yeah, uh, we we have the right to actually do this distribution globally on any platform, and it, there is a it is a big technical challenge to uh, to to sort of support that. Yep. But because we can amortize that cost across the entire catalog, it is it is possible to do that in 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 a very economically beneficial setup. I think it's it's also it's also worth mentioning that from from day one we built everything as as a programmable piece of tech. Mm-hmm. So everything from getting a list of our games to how they're, you know, which phase of development they're in, all that stuff is captured programmatically. 
Yep. which means that from day one, we could treat the entire catalog as, as something we could manipulate with more programming. So we've both been engineers for, for decades. And by making, like capturing that complexity in a way that makes us able to deal with it with machines, it allows us to, to let the computers do all the, the boring work. Very good. And yeah, and as you mentioned, your history of having been engineers for many decades, maybe we can delve into that a little bit. Like, how did FRVR come together? Where did you guys meet? In what way did you decide to launch the company? And what has changed since you started the company? Uh, so, hyper condensed founding story Please? is that I had a, a corporate job in America. Yeah. And I was tired of having a corporate job in, a, in America. So I wanted to go build a, I called it a hobby startup. I blogged mm -hmm. about this aggressively when, when I did it. And the idea was to get to making $300,000 a year yep. because you can live most places for that yep. while doing as little work as possible, right? Mm -hmm. And this was, this was based on the idea that if you make games that are good enough that people will engage with them, they will, like people will play those games forever, right? And then the only thing you need to do to be successful, I say only, you know, in quotation here, is, is be good at distribution. Yeah. And while I was working in, in this other job, I managed to build a Klondike Solitaire game, like Windows Solitaire, the yeah. Solitaire that everybody knows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and grown that to $150 a day in revenue. And Excellent. You, know, okay. you can do that like, like eight times, right? You're done. You know, yes. you're, you're already there. And then I've been working on this next game. I wanted to try to see if I could build a game that was not a known game, but sort mm -hmm. of a, a newer mechanic. And it turns out if you put a, a pretty good new game, something that actually have a little bit of, a, of innovation in, into a machine that can pump a, a solitaire game to $150 a day, what, you, what you're making is like, like $3,000 a day. So mm -hmm. that, was, that was the reality I was in like a month after quitting my previous job. I've been working on this for half a year, right? Mm -hmm. Quit my job one month later, I was making like three thousand dollars a day. I was like, Oh, that was easy. And like, I did the most Silicon Valley thing you could actually when I quit my job. I sold all my stuff and started traveling, right? But it was very apparent then, you know, that was more than just a hobby startup, mm -hmm. right? And a big opportunity of, that you kind of hit on, yeah, a huge opportunity, yeah. right? There was mm -hmm. definitely there was a value difference in the market that could be could be arbitraged, mm -hmm. and there was a willingness from, from consumers to, to play these games, right. You know, sort of the, the realization that the, that people did not care where they played the game. They only cared to get a good game, right? Yes. It was sort of the big insight. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about doing publishing and I started thinking about like building a real company. And I was talking to everybody I know about this, right? Like there, there was no secret here. There was no secret source. There's nothing I had to keep secret. So I just talked to everybody about what I was doing to try to get a bunch of feedback. And Brian was one of the people I've, I've known for quite a while. I used to rent office space from him where he was okay. in his game company. <laughs> and Brian had managed to extract himself from the, from the company he was, he was building before. He sold some of it off and, and done quite well for, him, for himself as well. And Brian is good at all the stuff I'm bad at. Like, so I know <laughs> what I'm good Talk to me about at. that. What, what are you bad at, Chris? And, I uh... am incredibly <laughs> bad at structure. Okay. And repetition <laughs> and building teams of people to go do things, right? You know, I'm, I'm a decent generalist and I'm pretty good at growth hacking, but I'm, I am now, like I have people working for me now, but I probably shouldn't be a boss and I most definitely <laughs> shouldn't be a CEO, right? <laughs> you know, and as there was sort of this match made in heaven, right? So Brian joined as a late joining co-founder. And mm -hmm. we, we fairly quickly grew from two people to 14 people, right? That's Just awesome. based on, our, on, on this initial success. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And we, and we started unpacking this strategy to realize it was a much larger market opportunity. 
Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it was, it, it was, it was very clear that there was a paradigm shift happening where the 10 years of ironclad rule of the app stores was starting to show some cracks. And it's interesting for all the time that we've worked together, we've never pivoted or changed the direction of the strategy, but it has become uh, both more focused in execution and way more expensive in ambition. So it's interesting to see how, how that has just, uh, it's continued. The red thread is very clear all the way back. But the ambition has just grown insanely since uh, <laughs> since we started. So and I gotta say, for, the, focusing on the I crack think, in the app stores, it sounds like, and then you see more and more of a crack coming through. Is that right? Well, actually, when we first started walking around at conferences talking about this stuff to people, they were they, it was a pretty fringy, lunatic idea that <laughs> there was something beyond the app stores. Like you, you would have you'd have people that have grown up their entire professional careers inside of the the reign of the app stores. They consider the, the market dynamics of, uh, of the app stores, like their laws of physics, they're, they're immutable. But we, we're old farts, so we've been around like the previous <laughs> 17 game distribution paradigms and, uh, and we could recognize the, cha- the winds of change when uh, <laughs> we started seeing them. So Brian, coming back to the co-founder dynamic, what do you appreciate in Chris that maybe you're not the strongest at? It's, it's, you're, great at you're great at answer, like you ask the questions that I want to answer. So that's oh, awesome. <laughs> um, like I, I wanted to, to jump in before and say, I think the, the thing I really appreciate about Chris and, I, and how we complement each other super well is the fact that Chris is, he, he may be bad at structure, but he is the fastest person I've ever seen at trying stuff out. Mm. He is the most prolific prototyper and, and, he, <laughs> and even his, his prototypes are solid. Like when, when you get a, things into the hand of customers, it feels good. It might be made with duct tape and bailing wire behind mm-hmm. the scenes, but the customer will never feel that. And the cool thing, the cool thing about that is that I think as an engineer, a more typical engineer that, that I am, I think I, you have a tendency to overinvest in tech. Yes. Like you tell yourself that it has to be good before it can be used. And Chris has just so profoundly shown me that that's not like, like it, the product has to feel good, but you can actually you know, you can you can make do with ten percent of what you thought you had to do before it, it actually uh, makes sense and, and can get into it's the people's hands. And I think, like Chris can can write fantastic code when he wants to, but the fact that he is just you know super super fast at testing stuff out, it, it very quickly gave us this gave us this dynamic where he found stuff that works, and then I made it solid, like basically scalable. And that was how the entire tech foundation of the company came to be and why we ended up being able to capture so much complexity was because I wouldn't overinvest in things that weren't already proven. Yep. And Chris wouldn't be bogged down with having to, you know, polish everything up to a, a place where, where you could stack a, a something heavy on top of it. Yeah, so so this reminds me of, I believe it's Matt Mokri, who in uh, The Great CEO Within wrote about being conscious of the difference between prototype code and production code, and that many startups fail at that because in the beginning, everything is a prototype, and then two years later, they're bogged down in bugs, and you know everything needs to be very solid, and then they wonder why product doesn't deliver any features anymore. Right. So how do you guys think about that balancing of prototype code and and production code? And would you actually, as an ongoing question, as a supplementary question, would you actually recommend that people think of these as really separate buckets of, let's say, the product engineering departments? I think we, we ended up finding a methodology that we call the four eights, which okay. is, uh, is a smart way of saying, uh, or a clever way of saying we, we usually separate stuff into four stages and they're of wildly different length, but it really helped like communicate how we, how we do this stuff. So 
when first we start with val like the four eights are validate, replicate, formulate, and automate. Mm -hmm. And we start we start basically by validating something as cheaply and simply as possible. And and it's great practice to think of it like it should be absolutely thrown away when uh, when you've tested it. And then if it works out, then we replicate it, and then we might you know un clean up the worst of it and and make it a little bit more prepared for the future but still very, very uh, cheap and effective ways of testing things out. And once it's been proven that it works multiple times, then we start to formulate it. And this, by, this is by far the most difficult step. It's basically mm -hmm. going from, from something that runs on intuition and maybes to basically proving it out with data and finding out how it works. And then once we get to the point where we have a recipe, then usually it, it lends itself to either to be fully or partially automated. And then we invest mm -hmm. in making it. And that, and this is like key to, to how we, again, captured all that complexity was because once we figured out the, com the correct sequence of things to do to launch on the app stores, then it became a single command that fired off 20 other commands that did all the right mm -hmm. steps in the right order. Yeah, and it, it sounds like indeed this, this uh, feels a little bit like a funnel, right? That there are a lot of projects probably that never even make it to the formulate stage or even to the to the replicate stage because you've already filtered out what what didn't work. That's awesome. Did you say it's called yeah, four, four eights? Just uh, getting the terminology right, Brian. The, the the four eights, like as in the formulate, replicate. Ah, four eights. I got it. Okay, like yeah. as in the past tense of eating, right? Yeah, very good. And and, <laughs> and, and, and and like the replication step is something we we purposefully put in there because you might do something and be lucky. Mm -hmm. That's but right. So, can, but, but luck is very hard to replicate. If I find a good way of always winning the lottery, right? It's no longer a lottery. So this is uh, rather in, in, than just running one experiment, you actually want to have some solid significance behind your it, it, exactly, statistical exactly. test. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, in the very beginning good. The, the, in the beginning, the process was more like validate, arguate, and then automate. <laughs> 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 that's exactly right. Yeah. So you got from three eights to four eights and that seems a little bit more, you know, uh, solid. Why is the formulate stage so difficult? It's basically where you go from being lucky to being deliberate. And I think for, I think it's very, like often you'll find people that are talented and do things for, for whatever reason, and then it works. I think uh, like Chris is amazing at balancing progression in games. Mm -hmm. So if you play a, a game from Chris, it it starts out easy and then it gets you know more difficult in the right way, and that's that's you know it's a very subtle art to be able to do that, and it's there's no real recipe for it. And if you were to uh, to have someone else build those games, they just they don't feel balanced in the same way. You either make it too difficult too quickly or not difficult enough too slowly or whatever. It, it's just it's just something that requires a lot of intuition. And now we've never been able to formulate that specific thing. Mm. But the, the basic idea is, is when, you, when you're forced to, to make a recipe for someone else to execute on how you did something, then you suddenly get away from, from having you know, individual people getting lucky or being mm. really, having really great intuition about something to getting to a point where you actually have a chance of scaling it. I think all companies actually intuitively decide what they want to work on next, mm -hmm. right? We just turn that into a process, right? Yeah. So most people basically start in the formulate step, right? Mm -hmm. You sit down and you write a you're sort of a, a product spec, right? Mm -hmm. And then you say, how do we measure this, right? What, is, what are our KPIs for this new product that we are rolling out? And what, what does success like, look like and whatever? 
And very often we found, and this is this is very true in games, is that's a very costly exercise in comparison of just trying it. If you have yes. a great idea, just try it, mm-hmm. right? And then you can be lucky and it works, right? So if that's the case, if you're seeing an improvement in the product as a function of this intuitive idea, go do it again, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, if you've been lucky twice, you know, then it's worth actually spending the effort, right? And that means you can do, you, you can possibly run like a, maybe even two orders of magnitude more experience, mm-hmm. experiments yeah. than, a, than a team that runs in a more standard, standard way of operating, right? In terms of the hiring, uh, Brian, what's the positions that you're looking for most at the moment and what kind of people fit FRVR the best? We have a very strong core of techies. Mm-hmm. But we like people who are strong technically and who have market sensibilities. We've been hiring pretty aggressively in the engineering department because traditionally we've uh, we've, we've had a very tiny engineering department mm-hmm. who has managed to do a lot in, in a short amount of time. But now we're getting to the point where we want to be able to do many more things in parallel. And we've validated the, you know, like the unit economics of what we do and, and the basic systems. So now we're ramping up to be able to capture more opportunities in parallel. Value-wise, fit-wise, personality-wise, what's the perfect FRVR employee? I think intellectual honesty, really a strong uh, technical side or whatever they're you know, supposed to be handling, they have to be fantastic at. I feel like we've, we've gotten some really good people there. But the curiosity about you know, breaking the mold and trying new things and, and finding a way to solve problems that, not this, that haven't necessarily been found before rather than be unhappy about you know, lack of documentation or beta technologies or channel that has just started where everything doesn't work properly. I think there are people who attack that as a challenge and who absolutely love succeeding at that. And then there are people who sit down and wait for, uh, for the next release where the bugs are fixed. Mm. And uh, our, our employees are squarely in the former camp. Okay, that's a great description. Thank you for that. And just in general, I'm very excited to see what's coming down the pike for FRVR, especially your new round coming up as well. And uh, again, if there's investors listening or want an intro, please uh, reach out. Brian Medell and CEO and Chris uh, Benjaminson, the founder of FRVR. Thank you so much for joining this week. This was a true pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. This was a lot of fun. Take care. Thank you. Like what you heard? Subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Tune in next time for more tech news and interviews with some of the brightest minds in tech today.